You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. the 31st, we will be out of the EU, free to chart our own course as a sovereign nation, taking back control of our money, our laws, our borders and our trade. We are ready to move to the next phase in our relationship. We want our future relationship to be as close as possible in full respect of our principles. We don't yet know what sort of a Brexit we'll get. We don't yet know whether it's going to be a roaring success or a horrible failure. And five years down the line, when we next have a general election, those issues are then possibly going to come back. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm, I'm Sebastian very good Salik. Al- he's, he's Sebastian Salik. I'm Roger <laughs> Hearing. A very good afternoon from both of us. Now, it has been an interesting moment in terms of the kind of calm atmosphere that's descended on the country, really, at the beginning of 2020 in political terms. Because you've got a Conservative government, Sebastian, who is... Mm-hmm. Well, the traditional character of a Tory administration, especially one with a thumping majority, is economic confidence and a hands-off approach. But this does seem now to be different. Ministers have stepped in to rescue the beleaguered regional airline Flybe, and the latest retail sales figures, pretty horrendous, even include the period after Boris Johnson's victory. They indicate people are not reaching into their pockets and paying for things. They're not confident, in other words. We don't. This isn't normal politics. It's not. Well, this is a people's government, remember, so it's going to be very different. This is a man who managed to turn the tide on his own party and win this majority after however many terms uh, we saw under the Tories. Was it three? Was it four? I can't off the top of my head. Uh, but anyway, let's dive into this. The other thing we've got to talk about, of course, is Flybe, the beleaguered regional airline, um, which is uh, being bailed out. We've got a little bit more detail on that. So let's dig into these two things. We are joined now by Bloomberg's senior executive editor, David Merritt, and our reporter, Charlotte Ryan. Um, so, Charlotte, let's start with you. What have we learned that's new about the Flybe bailout? So, yeah, the latest developments on Flybe this morning are that the UK government is considering subsidising some routes. Um, that's kind of a recognition of the fact that some of the routes that Flybe runs are these vital points of connection between various places in the UK, but that they're also not particularly profitable. And also importantly with that, it does mean that you don't run up against those EU state aid rules, provided that you can show that those those routes are necessary. Because in fact the complaints, there's a complaint by IAG, potentially also from uh, the the, the Ryanair boss, um, that this actually is going against rules and this is not a legal way forward. Yeah, so as expected with um, this kind of measure, we've had a lot of criticism from The other airlines, um, you know, we had Ryanair saying yesterday that they've written to the Chancellor um, asking for the same tax holiday, which is how they referred to it. 
Um, and they've also today been on the radio accusing the government of covering up the terms of this um, of this package. So yeah, obviously, you know, any airline that's in competition are not going to be happy with what they see as government intervention. And that is intervention. I mean, David, let me pick this up with you because it's an interesting moment. Tory governments don't get involved in the market. They don't rescue companies. They don't uh, come in and say, no, no, we have to sort this out. It's not It's not part of their DNA, Well, normally it? not. No, exactly. But of course, we, you know, they're very keen to demonstrate that they're a different sort of Tory government. I think that's what's going on here in the background. You know, we know that they've got all these new voters, haven't they? In parts of the country they could never reach before, they're sending a signal. We're going to be different. We're going to try and prop up companies when we see fit. And actually, it's interesting, isn't it? These complaints to the European Union, how wonderful is that for Boris Johnson, who can say, look, um, what better symbol of why we need to leave the EU at the end of the month, because then we can stop all this interference. People don't have to go and ask permission to Brussels for us to do this. We can do it anyway. You heard in our jingle there, taking back control of money and our laws. What better symbol of that than propping up this regional um, airline and, and perhaps in contravention, perhaps deliberately, of EU state aid rules? But then Boris Johnson is really still in his honeymoon period. And as we know, as we've learned from the Brexit process, that Conservative Party is a very broad church. There's a wide range of views. How long until people start coming out of the woodwork and those problems appear for Boris Johnson? Yeah, I mean, it's already happening. You're already hearing people more on the right uh, of the Tory party, the more traditional Tories perhaps, howling a little bit about this. You know, what's going on? Is he actually Tony Blair in disguise? Uh, Is he actually um, a socialist propping up a failing airline, those voices are certainly there already. And if we see much more of this stuff, we'll probably get a bigger clue, of course, in the budget that's going to come out in March. Um, he may si- find that some of those, I mean, yes, he's got a thumping majority, but some of those more traditional Tories uh, start to rebel a bit. Charlotte, I mean, one of the interesting aspects is if you look at other ailing parts of the economy, well, you could look at the high street for a start, we're in some pretty dire situations there. I mean, we're going to start seeing, you know, small uh, institutions there coming to the government saying, well, you know, we could do with a little bit as well, do you think? I mean, would that would that be something they could do? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. And I think what we're seeing here, you know, as we've said, Johnson is very early on um, in his premiership. And I think you're starting to see some of the tensions that are going to become more of an issue further down the line. You know, we've had pretty catastrophic retail sales, which, again, for someone who's kind of promised this swashbuckling Britain free of the constraints of the EU, what you don't want is the economy to turn downwards. In terms of whether they could actually, you know, offer these subsidies in the same way in retail, I think it is different given that the whole justification for this flyby package rests on the fact that you would have communities that basically don't have any other way to be connected with each other. I'm not sure you could say the same on our high street. But then we have had some pledges around funding for certain high streets, but that presumably isn't a a catch-all solution to the problem. Is another solution perhaps just to let let things go and to find other ways of regenerating your investment? We've had people on from the Centre for for Cities and other organisations talking about investing in not just retail, um, but um, other industries around the country. Yeah, so I mean, you know, as as we've said, the Conservatives are looking like a much broader church um, after this election result. And certainly the the things you see when you go to some of Britain's regions, you know, you've got boarded up shops, 
you've got kind of a, a lack of investment, that is going to be something that will likely have to be addressed. And I think on this and the economy, we are really just looking towards that March budget to see how these plans actually take shape. Well, that's very, I mean, David, when we get to the March budget, we could be in a situation potentially where we have a Bank of England that's cut rates. Mm-hmm. That's certainly in prospect. I think it's something like 60% probability mm-hmm. reckoned for the end of January at the moment. If that is happening, then, I mean, you could be in a situation where the economy doesn't look perhaps as Boris Johnson would like it to look going into out into the wide world um, to try and get lots of good trade deals. Well, that's right. You know, weren't we promised a big Brexit dividend when this deal got signed? That's what Philip Hammond was uh, pledging, wasn't he, when they were trying to get Theresa May's uh, deal through? There's going to be a big surge. Now, I mean, you know, I, I would caution reading too much into one retail sales number. Of course, you know, that election happened on the 12th of December, so that's halfway through the month, and we know there was huge uncertainty before. For that, and then it was Christmas when you a week or so later. So hard, I think, to read too much into it. And there are some surveys talking about a pickup in confidence since the uh, since the Tories got that win. So let's wait for a little bit more data uh, to come out. And we also know about the trends in the high street as well. And you know that that Britons have been deserting the the the, the shops for some time. So let's see some more of the data. But yes, it's going to be problematic, isn't it, for the Prime Minister if uh, this big surge in the economy doesn't happen. How is he going to fund all these big spending pledges that he's talking about if the economy takes a bit of a dip? That's a big question because, of course, the uncertainty surrounding the withdrawal agreement is gone, but we still have no idea what the future relationship is like going to be like with the European Union. And huge uncertainty still is going to play out through all the rest of the year. And that's going to have an impact on people's competence and an impact on business. I would ask you also about the cliff edge in the context of sentiment because we've had yet another one now. Boris Johnson being very clear that he's not going to extend of course, he could go back on that. But the messaging is there that at the end of the year, that is that. What's that going to do to both consumer and to, to business sentiment when they know that this is huge moment where we could end up leaving without any sort of arrangement with the EU? Yeah, we're going to have to see how those um, initial after the 31st this month, how the trade talks um, pan out. There's going to be fights over the sequencing of it. There's going to be clashes over what goes in, what goes out. Um, how it plays out is going to be really important, I think, to the broader perception of uh, where Brexit is going to head. And yes, is they are they going to set up some big cliff edge? Is he going to take his cue from Donald Trump and his negotiations with China and think we've got to set up some drama around this to get what we want? Of course, Europe don't want that cliff edge either. So yes, there could be a little bit more grandstanding. And of course, the more of that that happens as the year goes on, the less the markets are going to like it, the less consumers and businesses are going to like it. Well, Charlotte, let me bring you in on this. If, if all this happens and we start seeing movement on the pound, I mean, it's a classic, because all the way back, I remember, I'm so old, I remember Harold Wilson talking about the pound in your pocket. It was a huge political issue where the pound moved, even if it didn't have no actual concrete effects on people's lives. But the pound could be battered in the coming eight months, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it certainly could. Although an interesting point with this is that we have traditionally seen that the pound and investors do tend to prefer a conservative administration. There is kind of an inbuilt level of confidence uh, for a lot of investors just around the fact that you know, Johnson won the election rather than obviously those fears of a left-wing government under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, but it's true that that can only take you so far. And yeah, in terms of the the possibility of a Bank of England rate cut, I think the latest I'd seen was that money markets see a 75% chance 
of a cut this month, um, which is obviously fairly significant. And I think really the key for that is going to be the PMI data next week and how exactly that shapes up. And what about the impact of a rate cut, if we do get it, as you indicate we we might, on uh, just normal people in this country, the sort of people in the Midlands and the North? Will they necessarily feel that? Yeah, so this is something that I think has been a big debate for central banks really over this period since the financial crisis. You know, in theory, if you're thinking about people that have maybe debt, um, loans, things like that, it would be a benefit for them. But I think what we've started to see is that that benefit really hasn't trickled through in the way that you would expect. And of course, savers are being hurt. And then also, I think there is just the perception that on the one hand, you've got promises that everything's going to improve now that we've um we're getting onto this next phase of brexit and if you're then cutting rates that sends quite a different signal success is more than a destination it's a path you take one step at a time it's dedication it's fortitude and it's the work passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition that's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at the other stories that are making the news today. I'm going to start with some early horse trading ahead of those formal UK-EU negotiations. Giefer Hofstadt, who is the European Parliament's Brexit coordinator, has said that his meeting with Brexit Secretary Stephen Barclay yesterday saw the government concede over allowing EU citizens to have a hard copy of their settled status confirmation. Remember, this has been an issue whereby uh, the only way that you can prove that you have settled status is a certificate that's sort of on uh, the website, I believe, of the Home Office, and there's been some concern around Windrush that can we trust the government to look after those? Uh, he told, this is for Hofstadt, telling the Today programme, people have the opportunity to have a printout, probably a PDF document. And then separately, we had the German Defence Minister, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, who's called for the EU to offer Britain privileged third-party status in defence and foreign, foreign policy coordination after Brexit. So she's quite keen to uh, stay close in those areas where I suppose the UK is quite strong. Yeah, meanwhile, your uh, daily update on where we are with the Labour leadership campaign. Rebecca Long-Bailey and Emily Thornbury will formally launch their bids for Labour leadership today. Long-Bailey's doing hers in Liverpool. Now, this is really weird. Thornbury's going to Guildford. Now, perhaps in my neck of the woods, there aren't a lot of Labour supporters <laughs> there. Uh, it's a very interesting choice. Apparently, it's her hometown. Anyway, that's all ahead of the first of 12 official leadership hustings, which happens tomorrow. And do you know what? I'm hearing a lot of people making very strong calls about who's going to be the winner. And I feel like it's very premature to do that because if you compare this contest with 2015 with 2010 at this stage it was unimaginable almost that Ed Miliband 
or Jeremy Corbyn would have taken it. So I think you really have to be careful there. Uh, but anyway, let's go to this, this last story. The number of UK pubs and bars has risen for the first time in a decade. Cheers to that. Mm. The overall count grew by 315 in 2019, according to the Office for National Statistics. And those with fewer than 10 employees, so the smaller ones, also increased, bucking a 15-year slide. So a lot of concern around the state of the high street, which we were covering in the first part of this programme. But there is a little bright spot there. For some drinking establishments. Perhaps perhaps people needed a good drink after what's been happening in uh, recent months. Anyway, let's move on to a really interesting issue. Many UK institutions, even the more traditional ones, have gone out of their way in recent years to display their diversity credentials, not least as regards LGBT people. The Army, the police, the Bank of England even have published policies of openness and inclusion and even taken part in pride rallies. So there's a bit of surprise then when the FT, the Financial Times, published a report that Tim Hales, who would have been the first openly gay person to hold the office of Lord Mayor of London, was asked in 2018 how he would prevent the one-year mayoralty being hijacked, their words not mine, by the gay community if he was awarded the post. Now it was reported that Mr Hales was also asked in the interview how he would make up for his lack of, quotes, a consort, the partner who accompanies a Lord Mayor during official engagements. Mr Hales, for his part, hasn't commented on any of this. Uh, but we had a response, or there was a response, to uh, from the City of London Corporation which said that any allegation that a mayoral candidate was blocked on the grounds of sexuality is completely untrue and without foundation. The City of London Corporation is committed to ensuring there are no barriers to any member of our community standing for the elected office of Lord Mayor. We aspire to be a leader in diversity and inclusion. So we don't know the absolute truth of this, but it has to be said this has spoken to a lot of people about what many see as a problem in this place where we are in the City of London. Joining us now on the line is Rebecca Hildenrath, who's CEO of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Rebecca, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. First of all, just give us your response to that thing, that story. I mean, we can't confirm it, of course, but from what we know, what do you respond to the way in which he was interviewed? Well, I think it's frankly bizarre. Um, I, I just frankly find it difficult to imagine why they asked the question, what the purpose of it was, um, and also how they thought he would react. Um, I understand that if you interview somebody in a way your primary purpose is that you want to see whether you want give them a job or give them a position, but you're also selling your own organisation, aren't you? And if you ask that sort of question of somebody, um, it's not going to make your organisation an attractive prospect to them. And Rebecca, do you think there's a valid discrimination claim? Um, well, it's, we would say that it's discriminatory to, on the face of it, to ask people questions um, in a way that you're being treated less favourably than somebody else with a different protected characteristic. I think there are two points to make there. Um, If you ask questions like that at an interview, um, you expose yourself to a claim for discrimination if the person doesn't get the job, because that appears to be sort of prima facie um, evidence that says that that would have been taken into account in whether that person was successful or not. But I would say even if a person isn't successful, it's possible um, on the facts of the case that they could claim to have been treated differently, um, especially because that sort of line of questioning could be humiliating and and could be embarrassing. Um, And the essence is that you should be treating everybody the same as an interview, um, regardless of their sexual orientation and indeed their race, their gender um, and everything else. Rebecca, let me ask you, I mean, we've talked about the fact that this is clearly unacceptable. Is it surprising? Are you surprised that this happened? Um, I'd like to say that I'm surprised. It's not my general experience. Um, we did a, um, we commissioned a YouGov survey a couple of years ago, um, specifically commissioned from a thousand leading businesses. I'm talking quite, quite serious industry leaders here. 
Um, this was not about LGBT um, um, individuals, but it was about women. Um, and some of the stats there um, you'd think were quite shocking. So you're talking about a third of these people thought it was okay to ask a woman at an interview if she was planning on having kids. Um, and I think 46% thought it was okay to ask if she did have kids. And 60% thought it was okay to ask if she was pregnant. And what's startling about that is all that stuff's been unlawful for decades and these are serious people in serious organizations who ought to know the law so what is or isn't acceptable and what is or isn't lawful there's a gap i think between that and what's actually going on especially in places where it's often quite difficult for individuals to take legal action because obviously what they're going to be doing is worrying about their chances of getting a job and their careers and how concerned are you about uh, issues in the City of London? I mean, historically, uh, th- there's been a lot going on. We've had reports recently, both within Bloomberg and elsewhere, around uh, LGBT issues and sexism and, and, and other issues as well. Um, are, are you concerned about that? There are disparities um, in London. I mean, obviously, inequalities across the country vary regionally and by sector. Um, but, for example, we know that there's a larger employment gap in, in the City of London with more men employed than women. Um, and we also know that um, the finance sector, which obviously is quite um, predominant in the city, has the second highest gender pay gap um, after the construction industry. Um, we also know that the finance in- industry um, is geared to quite a large extent by bonuses, um, where there's a 40% ga- gender pay g- gender gap. Um, and, and we ran a, an inquiry into the financial services industry um, about 10 years ago, where really what we found was a complete lack of transparency in terms of how bonuses were award- awarded and how gender inequality was managed. Um, and I think, you know, that that's kind of quite predominant um, across the city. So you're seeing some quite specific inequalities there. And I think what I would say is that diverse workforces are really good news. You know, you're talking about a range of different views being um, contained within the workforce, which makes it more effective and and better decision making. There's a lot of evidence from that, you know, from from McKinsey. So it's very counterproductive um, for for industry and for employers um, not to be encouraging a greater diversity within their workforces. I should just clarify there that um, the incidents I was talking about, the reporting was being done by Bloomberg. It wasn't necessarily happening here. <laughs> uh, let me uh, question you on this, Rebecca. We, I mean, just focusing on the LGBT issue, there's a report from Stonewall which uh, said that around one in five LGBT plus staff in the financial world have been the target of negative comments or conduct from colleagues in 2018. Uh, is that, that surprising? Um, It's disappointing, isn't it? It's really disappointing. Um, I would say that we, generally speaking, think that there's a slight paucity of data in relation to LGBT um, workforce, and that's part of why we encourage um, reporting um, across the piece, across all protected characteristics, because it's shining a light on the data that really helps. Um, We think there should be more emphasis on um, employers collecting that sort of data, and also on them encouraging people to self-declare. Well, there are other stats. GEO, the Government Equality Office, um, ran a survey um, which showed that 23% of um, the LGBT community had experienced some sort of negative reaction from colleagues in work, and 11% of them had been outed without their consent within the workforce. Um, So there's quite a lot of data out there from different sources which suggests that there is a disadvantage that's being suffered. Um, And I think it's greater if you look at what we 
we would call intersectionality, so LGBT individuals who also might be um, from the BME communities or from or, or disabled, um, where it becomes aggregated. And would that be worse, do you think, in, in, in perhaps some of you might see a very traditional sector, which is the finance industry, um, than it would be in some other sectors, do you think? Um, I don't have the data to comment on that. As I say, I think, you know, we're aware that we could have more data on the LGBT community, and that would be really helpful. Um, I think it's also fair to say that there's a lot of good practice out there. And obviously, Stonewall um, published an index which celebrates really good practice across the board. And that, by the way, includes Lloyds Banking Group, um, which is obviously um, a city institution. Um, And, um, you know, it's important to recognise what good looks like, as as well as looking at where we need to improvement. And finally, do you think that previous comments made by the Prime Minister undermine any government efforts to tackle this? Sean Berry of the Green Party has said that she thinks there's a clear link between rising levels of hate crime and inflammatory language by public figures like Boris Johnson, she quotes him particularly, uh, which makes bigots think that they can get away with criminal behaviour, she says. We've published some guidance this week specifically about harassment at work, and I think it's probably worth employers looking at that to think about what what better, what good might look like in their organisations. And that's about some kind of quite basic things around having a proper having a proper policy against harassment in place, having one-to-one meetings with your with your workforce, looking at what risk looks like, having reporting mechanisms, putting training in place on harassment, and being able to act immediately and also take third-party harassment just as seriously. So I would say that those are the sorts of things that are going to make a difference and that's where industry should be focusing. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.